Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 112. On this episode, we're talking about the meaning and telos of Israel's election with Dr. Joel Kaminsky and Dr. Mark Riesner. Dr. Joel Kaminsky is Morningstar Professor of Jewish Studies and Professor of Religion at Smith College. And Dr. Mark Riesner is Professor of Biblical Theology at Marion University. And they're the authors of an article that we're discussing today entitled, The Meaning and Telos of Israel's Election, an Interfaith Response to N.T. Wright's Reading of Paul, published in the journal Harvard Theological Review in 2019. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Chris Song, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this episode, as we carry on with our anti-Judaism series, we're discussing the election of Israel and what it means and what it's for. And our guests today take issue with a particular articulation of that topic. Chris and Logan, what did you think about our conversation with Dr. Kaminsky and Dr. Reisner? Yeah, in this episode, Joel Kaminsky is going to share some thoughts about this perceived tension between particularism and universalism in discussions and interpretations of Israel's election. Uh, and he has some really insightful thoughts about how those uh, relate and how we don't have to set them in conflict. The conversation was, I think, a really good model of what Jewish-Christian dialogue can be. They talk particularly about Wright's own reading of Paul, N.T. Wright, and uh, his reading of Paul, predominantly in his Paul and the Faithfulness of God volume. It's a, it's a fruitful conversation about, I think, what some of the, the, the big differences are in approaching Scripture and um, how one might read Scripture, uh, both the Hebrew Bible and, and the New Testament, and the possibilities of this kind of exchange that takes place. Yeah, they talk a bit about this balance between an instrumental uh, articulation of Israel's election and an intrinsic understanding of it, Israel being elected strictly out of God's own love for Israel, and this instrumental idea of Israel being chosen for a particular purpose. And they discuss this issue of balance and particularly take issue with the instrumental idea uh, at, at the heart of Wright's articulation. Yeah, right. The idea of Israel as an instrument, I think Wright is at home using that language. He would use the example of Cyrus being an instrument for uh, God's own purposes, Pharaoh being an instrument for God's own purposes. And so therefore, Israel as the servant um, in some of the later, later Isaiah chapters, the servant that brings the light to the Gentiles um, as sort of this beacon that is entrusted to save the world by, by being God's people. And in Wright's view, that vocation serves its purpose and ultimately reaches its, its fulfillment or climax with the Messiah, Jesus, and the Spirit. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Kaminsky and Dr. Reisner. Well, Dr. Kaminsky and Dr. Reisner, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. So we wanted to talk about the Harvard Theological Review article that the two of you wrote, which is a response to N.T. Wright's articulation of Paul's 
uh, reckoning of the relationship between Israel and the church and specifically the election of Israel. Wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the impetus of that article and some of the um, issues that you're trying to address there. Well, I, I think it, it arose because it ended up on Mark's desk at some point, and he asked me if I happened to notice that N.T. Wright critiqued some of my ideas from my Yet I Love Jacob book. And so I ordered the book up for the library and, uh, you know, nobody likes to be critiqued, but I was primarily annoyed, not because I was critiqued, but because I thought I was unfairly critiqued. I thought critique that Wright was delivering was a distorted view of what is actually going on inside of the Hebrew Bible. I think he was misrepresenting the Hebrew Bible. So, so, and then Mark, I could let Mark speak on his own about Wright's ideas about Paul that, you know, I think Mark has strong feelings about. So why don't you chime in, Mark? Yeah, so um, N.T. Wright seems to read all of Romans 9 through 11 through the lens of not all Israel are Israel uh, at the end of 9-6, even though Paul kind of comes up with a different conclusion at the end that clearly is talking about ethnic Israel. So I kind of noticed, yeah, I noticed that he was sort of like criticizing Joel Kaminsky dismissively in the footnotes and then was bothered that he didn't see ethnic Israel, corporal Israel uh, at the end of, of the section in 11, 25 through 29. Yeah, I think it was only after we started talking and decided that maybe it would be worth making a response, we started making notes of that we started to notice other trends in the book that we found equally, if not more disturbing. Um, you know, it's a big book. It's hundreds of pages long. There's actually four volumes to it, right? There's two published volumes, each containing two volumes, as I remember it, one and two and three and four. Um, so it's it's massive, you know. I don't know how many pages total, but 15, 16, 1700 pages. So it's not like immediately everything about it struck us, but when we started looking at it, I think Mark found some of those disturbing passages about Israel being the central axis of sin in the world. Torah was intended to draw sin onto Israel. Yeah, yeah. Um, Israel had failed. He's got a whole sort of Israel as failure type of thing. As a primary message of Paul, neither of us, and most New Testament scholars, don't really see that as a primary message of Paul, that somehow or another Israel failed. It's more about Jesus succeeded. The article was a long time in the works. It was years in the works. I was slow. Joel, Joel was patient with me. And sometimes maybe my delays were like, as a Christian, uh, just wondering, am I am I denying what what I believe Jesus is by criticizing N.T. Wright or something like that? Uh, supersessionism is definitely in the New Testament, and it's kind of a question of what kind of supersessionism is healthy. And so these were issues that slowed me down. Can you clarify um, what exactly? Uh, N.T. Wright says about Israel in, I think the passage you mentioned was Romans eleven twenty five 25 through 29. Well, uh, Tom Wright says that uh, 
all Israel will be saved in Romans 11:26 means that it is a redefined Israel. It is he of course definitely says there's there will be some or many ethnic Jews among this number, but then it also includes the church that is Gentiles as well who connect with Christ and he's kind of tying it back as I said to the end of Romans 9 chapter 6 not all Israel are Israel that's the main thing I guess it it seems to me that the the whole context from chapter 10 on to the end always treats Israel as ethnic Israel the Israel on the ground that Paul's concerned about so to kind of redefine Israel right there at 1126 seemed unfortunate to me, seemed kind of coming, coming close to the idea that the church is replacing Israel. Joel, you said that uh, Wright critiqued your book, Yet I Have Loved Jacob. Uh, can you say more about some of the positions you set forth uh, in that book? Kind of what's its main theme and what are some of the themes that um, Wright picked up uh, critically? I don't know that the main theme is necessarily something that Wright addresses. I'd say probably the main theme is that election theology in the Hebrew Bible is a central idea. Jews and Christians can't really responsibly jettison the idea, even if it has problematic aspects to it. It's all right that it has problematic aspects. You can wrestle with those. But it's also more complex and nuance than many are aware of. So one of the arguments that I make is that, well, due to sort of later Christian, particularly Protestant, like Calvinist notions of double predestination, it's assumed that election means either you're elect and saved, or you're not elect and you're damned. And whatever's going on in the Hebrew Bible seems to be much more, more range. For starters, I argue as a heuristic device that it's worth thinking about there being at least three categories of election, the elect, which would be the people of Israel, the non-elect, which would be most other people, and the anti-elect, which are people like the Canaanites. But being a non-elect person is not the same as being an anti-elect person, and the non-elect people often serve a neutral or at times a quite positive role in the divine economy. I mean, there's all kind of non-Israelites, some of whom outshine Israelites, Rahab, Jethro, right? Abimelech, and, or if you prefer, Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. Um, you know, there's a lot, Mo, uh, Moses is saved by Pharaoh's daughter. You know, she's not portrayed as somebody who's like, damn, because she's related to Pharaoh, who's trying to kill the Israelites. She's actually portrayed quite positively. So a lot of flexibility in there. So that's the theme of the book. I do look at like problems. I look at the anti-Canaanite polemic and the anti-Amalekite polemic. But Wright was particularly, seemed particularly upset by my reading of the materials in Isaiah 40 through 55, or really all of 40 through 66, what scholars call second Isaiah and third Isaiah, second Isaiah being 40 to 55. And if you think a separate collection exists, 56 to 66 being third Isaiah or Trito Isaiah, which a lot of critical scholars believe was not these chapters from 40 on were not penned by the historic prophet from the 
8th, 7th century BCE named Isaiah, but by later people living in the Babylonian exile who penned these chapters and maybe 56 or 66 penned by somebody who returned, um, or at least that's a possibility. He argued that, um, well, basically he thinks that these chapters, particularly the Light to the Nations imagery in 42 and 49, are authorizing and primarily about Israel's mission to the Gentile nations. And my argument basically is that when you look at these chapters contextually, the nations are mentioned as witnesses, possibly as responding to God, but the chapters are addressed to the Babylonian exiles to motivate them to come back and realize that all is not gone, God still loves them, that God is going to rebuild them. They paid their, for their sins, and now is the, the promises and the prophetic corpus are, uh, are being activated. And the bulk of these chapters is really addressed to the people of Israel. It's an internal message, and the nations are sort of witnesses to this internal message, but they're not the primary recipient of it. And he reads this as primarily, oh, this is about Israel's being authorized and even more than authorized this is really their duty to do this to bring the god's message to them and israel failed at it and i just think that's distortionary now i do recognize that paul may have thought that in the moment he was living in new light was shed on these passages that suggested that God's, God did have a message for the Gentiles that he in particular felt authorized to bring to them. I don't have a problem with saying that, but Wright's reading was that Paul's realization of this in you know, his era was the actual contextual meaning of these passages when they were written in the 6th century BCE, which I think is not true. I think it's not sustainable when you look at it. And Years ago, I have a brilliant student. She works at Princeton Seminary now in the administration. She's high up in the administration, Ann W. Stewart. And she was a student and she wrote an honors thesis. And, you know, I had written my election book and she, you know, she wasn't totally buying it. And she wanted to read through these passages in second and third Isaiah with me, basically to prove that I was wrong about what I was arguing. And, um, she pretty much came to like realize that I wasn't totally right, but I was basically right about what I was saying. And we took the heart of her thesis and we co-authored an article that was published in a Harvard Theological Review called God of All the World. It's about the place of the nations in 55 through in 40 to 55 and then in 56 through 66, and how it does change over time. There is more attention and she tied it in this thesis to the development of monotheism. And when you eliminate the other gods, what does that mean about the people who worship those other gods? So you can have a look at that article. That's another conversation. But um, I don't think these passages, when you look at them in context, and, you, and that's one of the things that I said, it's easy to cherry pick a verse out, 42.6, 49.6, you know, and say, oh, this is missionary, but read the whole passage. You know, you read 49. It seems very addressed to comfort the people of Israel, to say that their enemies will be punished, 
speak of the return. That it's really interdirected. Just a, a thank you for that. And since we're on the topic of um, election in Israel, we can talk about one of the the main issues in in the article being this characterization of right that right has of Israel as being instrumental. Uh, sometimes he'll use the imagery of a car that has done its job, or you know, so, some some sort of instrument that that attains its purpose, um, and that that's that is. Uh, to use Wright's language, a language of vocation, that they were in, entrusted um, to bring the light to the Gentiles, uh, to save the world, and that this was sort of God's, God's plan for Israel. And so having done that job, that vision of, of history is, is now reached its, its fulfillment in the church. You know, I'll, I'll leave it to you to respond to, um, to, to just the instrumentality and the vocational aspect of, of Wright's characterization of Israel. For either of you, yeah. Well, look, I, I I think both Mark and I agree that it's not that there's no instrumental dimensions to Israel's election in the Hebrew Bible. The question is, what is the balance between? And Mark helped me develop these terms at one point when I was struggling with this chapter that I wrote for Yet I Love Jacob on prophetic materials or whatever. We came up with two terms: instrumental and intrinsic. So. You know, what's the balance between the intrinsic and sort of persistent elements of election and the instrumental elements of election? Of course, election implies some sort of service, but the question is if the humans who are called upon to serve, in particular the people of Israel, fail in certain of the dimensions of their service or don't fully live up to it, is the covenant dissolved? When you look at a lot of the prophetic corpus, it seems to say not. You know, you think of somebody like Hosea. I always like to say to my students, God and Hosea, you know, or in Jeremiah, you know, is a little bit like somebody on the Jerry Springer show whose wife has cheated on him. <laughs> but he's the guy who, rather than being angry, he just can't, he still wants the person back. Doesn't know why the wife's been unfaithful. You know, it's not working out well, but he's he's stuck on her, right? So, and that's sort of the and when you look at the shaping of the prophetic corpus, there's always the oracle. There's oracles of judgment. There's oracles of judgment against the nations. But toward the end of most prophetic books, there's oracles of restoration, and those suggest that there's. I don't want to say an utter unbreakability, but let's just say it seems hard to imagine the total dissolution of the covenant. And when you look at something like Deuteronomy chapter 4, 25 through 30 or 34 or something, there's this idea in there that God, if Israel violates the covenant, God will punish them. But there's also this idea that in exile, if Israel turns toward God, God will be responsive and the covenant can be reactivated. And Levinson talks about the way in which the promise to the fathers, like to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, acts as like the nesting that the Sinaitic covenant, which is more conditional, sits in. So yes, you ultimately have to fulfill the Sinai conditional covenant, but the covenant persists because of the promise to the fathers. And I think Wright misses some of those intrinsic dimensions. And what's strange about it, of course, is Wright is a Protestant. 
And it's weird to see such emphasis on like, well, Israel failed, works righteousness, they're out. Um, you did mention in one of your questions, this essay by Grindheim, which was in a collection of essays responding to Wright's massive book on Paul. And Grindheim actually cites my book, and I thought I'd read a little bit of what I say. He he has this marriage metaphor, and I think he got, you know, he borrowed, he built on some of the ideas that I have. I say, thinking of, about this, what is particularly odd about certain Christian attempts to speak of election in such instrumental terms is that such thinking seems to assume a type of works righteousness which is usually strongly rebuffed by Christian thinkers influenced by Paul. Here, one would be better served by recognizing that even though elements of service are integral to the notion of election, God's purposes are not totally revealed to humans. Paul uses this insight to explain how, in spite of what he sees as Israel's rebellion for God, they remain beloved by God. Well, in human eyes, it seems that God's larger plan has gone awry, even these detours may be fulfilling God's purposes, purposes that remain somewhat inscrutable to humans. Furthermore, it is not simply a question of trying to intuit the true purposes God has in mind for Israel, as if Israel was a utility tool God used for a particular purpose and then no longer needed. The God of the Hebrew Bible has an ongoing relationship with the people of Israel, and so you need to be cautious in employing the metaphor of service in too heavy a handed fashion that obscures the relational elements of election theology. It's about a relationship. You know, that, that piece is sort of missing in some of Wright's thing. And that's not even to mention the more problematic ideas that Wright invokes of Israel being cast away, of the locus, the central locus of sin, implying and points that Somehow or another, Israel is especially responsible for the crucifixion, which raises the specter of sort of deicide, even though Vatican II kind of put that to bed. So there's all those problems that Wright sort of dips into or moves toward that are that are problematic, which is not to say that Wright's supersessionism is identical to like classical Christian supersessionism, but in some ways it's a throwback to it. And regarding the... Uh instrumentality thing you know you could also think about isaiah 49 can a woman forget her nursing child she may forget i'll never forget you i've engraved you on the palms of my hands these all show that the god of israel is is in love with israel uh, regardless of what's been happening but on the romans front Wright does cite romans 2 uh, where Paul says in a diatribe mode, if you call yourself a Jew, you think you're a guide to the blind, a light to the nations. And so he critiques Israel there. But uh, I think that Wright doesn't recognize adequately that that's a diatribe, that Paul's basically trying to make the point that sin is found everywhere, whether it's among Gentiles that he's been railing against in chapter one or now against Jews in chapter two. But I don't think Paul is trying to say that Israel has failed its mission there. He's he's just showing that there's sin. There can be sin everywhere. To, like to go back to Wright's kind of like basic formulation of the election of Israel, right? So Adam sins and then Abraham is elected in Wright's terms in order to deal with the problem of Adam's sin. 
mm-hmm. right? And and this is where the instrumentality is, is brought in, right? And then this is this goes back to, all the way back to his essays and climax of the covenant, and and then all the way through uh, Paul and the faithfulness of God. Uh, but then of course he says, ah, oh, right. But then the problem is that Israel sins. Uh, Abraham's children end up sinning, and so God's solution to the Adamic problem itself becomes a problem, and so then you have a complex problem. But I think there's, you know, the way that uh, he gets there, uh, at least in Paul, is by kind of amplifying these texts, which do mention that, yeah, Israel can be a guide to the blind and and they, you know, have oracles that the Gentiles don't have. Um, but there's a difference between saying that, you know, Israel can be a, a light in the you know darkness of uh, a world filled with idolatry and saying that Israel exists for that purpose, right? And I think that's where he kind of amplifies those, those two texts, one from Romans 2 and the other from Romans 3. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some of them were unfaithful? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Um, and he kind of amplifies those texts to essentialize Israel as a fundamentally you know, missionary group um, that they're meant to... They're, they're elected for the primary purpose of missionalizing the Gentiles and therefore solving the problem of Adam's sin. And presumably, once you've solved the problem of Adam's sin, you know, their mission is complete. And you know, in Chris's language, you know, the car it kind of gets you from A to B. And once you get to B, you know, do you really need the car anymore right now? We should at least mention the fact that I think the approach that Mark and I take to much of Scripture and the approach that right takes are fundamentally different because right thinks that first of all right thinks that paul himself is systematic in everything that he says all the pieces fit together and i think mark and i generally feel that the letters are ad hoc letters and the pieces don't even need don't need to they may not always fit neatly together and trying to jam them all together might do violence to them. But even more than that, I think Wright thinks of all of Scripture as fitting together. I don't have a problem with that as like, if you acknowledge I'm a later Christian and I'm interested in doing a systematic reading of this, it's not really contextual. It's not really what is going on in here, but it's an interesting way to read these things. But that's not what he's trying to claim. He's trying to claim that this is like the contextual meaning in the ancient period. You know, Isaiah said X and all his pieces fit together. And Paul took the pieces that fit all together in Isaiah and pulled them into his system that pulled everything. So he sees everything all fitting together. And, I, you know, when I look at it, I'll, I'll, I'll say openly, I think the Hebrew Bible contains a variety of forays into the possible meanings of Israel's election. But it doesn't contain a sort of solid systematic statement. Israel is coming to realize what her election means over time. And there's different registers and different writers and different angles of looking at it. And sometimes different Gentiles bring pieces to them. Look, Balaam, or in English, Balaam, is a foreign prophet who says all sorts of declarative statements about what Israel's, what is, who Israel is and what, what, what her special status means that we never heard before, before we read numbers, you know, 22 to 24. So uh, I don't see it. I don't see like 
single laid out statements. There's and there's different views of it. You know, Deuteronomy has a view that's somewhat different than Leviticus has. And they're both shedding light on what are the possibilities of what Israel's election might mean and what are the implications for those outside of the covenant. And they're not all in agreement about that either. Um, they're having an argument about it. They're and they're also experiencing history that's changing their views of things as life unfolds over time. So it's it's not a static picture. And I think Wright's portraits tend to, I mean, one of the things we talk about and Mark could talk about this is Wright develops this whole meta story that really behind Paul's writings is this other story. And once I tell you this other story, everything in Paul fits together. But that other story is not in Paul, it's in Wright's head. It's like Q. Do people know what Q is on the podcast? You know, it, it's funny because how much Wright really dislikes the idea of Q. So there's an irony there. But well, he, yeah, he's got an alternative to Q, which is his meta yeah, story. Yeah, Mark, yeah. you want to talk about the meta story? Well, we've been touching on it already, and and Logan has done it, done the first part of it very well. So Adam sinned. God chooses Abraham and calls Abraham and elects the people of Abraham to take care of how Adam messed up for the human race. And then um, Israel messes up, according to Wright, and then so God sends Israel's Messiah to do, to kind of take the place of Israel, and then people who are connected or identify with the Messiah, they're kind of now the new, they're the, the new, new elect. Israel. And I mean, that he, he, I'm sure that Tom Wright would be uncomfortable saying they're the new Israel. He, he would say that's unfair, but practically that's kind of what it is. And then... Uh, back in the, in the details is the idea that God gave the law to Israel to uh, draw sin onto Israel. It's a reading of Romans 5.20 that reads Paul's statement, the hina adverb, hina particle in there to, as though it's purposive rather than a result. God gives Torah in order to make Israel more sinful and the world's sin reaches its apex in Israel. And at one point, as Joel already said, it, it sounds like he's kind of saying that Israel is shown to be most sinful when they're crucifying Jesus. These are things, you know, we Christians have been there and done that and it hasn't worked well. And we, we've, we're trying to repent from this. Christ died for everyone's sins, my sins first. Those kind of distressing things uh, were keeping us going. I did feel it was very healthy. I always got a good feeling working with Joel on this article that I thought it somehow something is right here that right R I G H T <laughs> that it's the right place to be for me as a Christian with Joel as a Jew to write about this topic uh, to to try to draw something together. Um, so it was very fulfilling to work on this article with Joel. Look, neither Mark nor I think that we're we're not striving to dissolve all the problems that Paul might raise for Jewish Christian relations. Right. What we're striving to do is try to find theological space for each other where it's available and where we think there's a responsible way to do that that's still responsible to the text. I mean, I think Wright would would be tend would tend to reply, well. I don't care if what I say is bad for Jewish Christians' relations, it's the truth. But the question is, 
is it the truth? Is there one truth? Is if there is, is his reading really the most sustainable reading? And are there places where he's exacerbating problems that go beyond what Paul is actually saying? And you know, that raises questions about like the ethics of interpretation. We sort of get into that some in the article a bit. But I do think that he is at times giving much less space. I mean, Wright is convinced that at the end of Romans, Paul is definitely saying that whoever is going to be saved in all Israel are people who have confessed Jesus. It might be that's what Paul meant, but that's never not what he says. He never says that. He leaves a lot of space there about how the people of Israel will be reincorporated. And it's weird because he could have said, of course, they'll all come back and confess Jesus. But he doesn't say that. So if he doesn't say that, why let's leave some theological space, at least for now, um, until we learn otherwise, because the space is there. You know, a lot of Jewish Christian relations is it's not about lying to each other. We want to be truthful with each other about where those differences really persist. And they they are real and they do persist. I don't know. I've written a piece recently that's called Jewish Christian Dialogue is No Laughing Matter or Is It? And it's me relating 10 Jewish jokes about Jewish Christian relations and reflecting on them theologically. And one of the points that I make in the article is, you know, on the one hand, the laughter brings us closer together. But on the other hand, some of the things that are spoken in these jokes are hard truths about our differences that aren't going to go away through a joke. So it's all right that we have differences. But the question is, I think we owe each other the responsibility to try to find theological space where it can be responsibly found. So that, that's what we were aiming for in this article. And we're blunt. We say Paul says a lot of negative things about the law. We're not denying that. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to Romans 9 to 11. Um, it's, a, it's a significant portion of Wright's book, and um, it's where the bulk of, of a lot of a lot of our discussion has been sort of taken for granted, but Dr. Reasoner, you had mentioned that Romans 9, 6 is sort of Wright's interpretive key, um, that, of course, Wright talks about Israel in Romans 9 to 11 in some senses in its eth ethnic sense. He, he, he begins with a mourning over his kinsmen according to the flesh. So Wright would admit he, he, he can recognize that there's an ethnic Israel, but sort of the controlling question is, well, not all Israel is Israel. And, and as uh, Dr. Kaminsky was saying, this all Israel being saved at the end of Romans 11, Wright seems to suggest, in fact, I, I, I'm looking at a quote right now where, where Wright says that what Paul means is the savability, that the ability for Jewish people to be uh, saved is... Um, is sort of the understanding of what that salvation entails. And so Paul has this, in Wright's view, this Messiah people um, that is now in, and again, quote, the new way to be Jewish um, is this redefined uh, around the Messiah and the Spirit, this redefined people of God that now is sort of the symbolic uh, light to the, to the world that Israel had once occupied. So is there, um, in your mind, sort of, you know, parts in Romans 9 to 11 that, that you feel just make it clear that Paul can't 
be talking about sort of the specified, um, redefined view of Israel, um, and is 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 speaking more directly about about Israel, about ethnic Israel, about the promises that were made to Israel. So first of all, there's not as hard a break between Romans eight and Romans nine as some people think, and when Paul says, you know, what shall separate us from the love of Christ, and then lists <clears throat> famine sword, all those things, those come out of uh, some of the curse lists in either Leviticus 25 or the end of Deuteronomy. 26. 26, thank you. I stand corrected. 25 is the Jubilee legislation. Okay. And um, so for Paul, I don't think, when Paul's talking about the elect, I don't think there's the strong Christian versus Jew kind of line for him as strong as it is for us uh, today. And then, uh, but basically, Chris, to respond to your question, Tom Wright and I have different ways of reading Romans 9 through 11. So his way is to read everything as, everything in Romans 9 through 11 is, has kind of the same DNA for him. The chromosomes are exactly the same all throughout. I say, I know Brendan Byrne says in his commentary that, that Paul sometimes takes a long way around and Paul kind of tries out things on his way to a conclusion. So, I mean, you can look at, you know, look at meat offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Well, the, Paul's responses to how to deal with meat offered to idols in chapter 8 is different from how it is in chapter 10. Uh, look at marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. It's good for a man not considering what you wrote. It's good for a man not to touch a woman, he says. But then he basically contradicts that a few sentences later. He's kind of going around. He's trying out things. So back to Romans 9 through 11, Paul lays out his grief. He does these forays. He thinks about Abraham. Then he thinks about Isaac and their situations. After that, he goes to three metaphors. He tries, he tries out the metaphor of the potter and clay, beginning in 9.14 through about 9.24. Then he tries out the idea of remnant, and he kind of stays on the metaphor of remnant through 11.10, so all of chapter 10. Then beginning in 11.11, he's preparing for his metaphor of the olive tree. And with the metaphor of the olive tree, he says, you know, yes, some branches have been broken off, but they could easily be grafted back in again. And they will be because it's so easy because this grafting according to nature, the grafting back into their home tree. And he ends with that. And there's no sign of the remnant idea, no sign of the potter and clay idea at the end. So for me, we need to prioritize the end. If you want to look at Romans 9, 6 as the thesis of the whole thing, I can agree that the first sentence, it is not as though the word of God has failed, that does seem to function as kind of a complete thesis for the whole thing. But after that, the not all Israel, our Israel is not, that continues maybe through 9, 13, but then after that, Paul's trying out the potter and clay metaphor, and then he finally ends with the olive tree metaphor. So I think um, we need to prioritize how he ends. Yeah, and I, I think that's very helpful. Um, I, I, I believe Dr. Wright has a sort of a metachiastic 
structure to Romans right. 9 to 12. And so the ends to him are less important because in any chiasm, it's the center that is the the, the sort of essence of it. And so, mm-hmm. so when when Paul is talking about the anguish for his 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 brethren, that's sort of a that's sort of a a lament that's reversed in the the doxology at the end. Yeah. And um mm-hmm. and and so, you know, I I think that if if we were to get right on here. He would he would talk about the fact that that that's more sort of more sort of less the point of nine to nine to eleven versus what's sort of in the center for for him. Yeah, we we do mention in the essay also the incoherence that it creates toward the end when Wright has two different interpretations for the word Israel in two different verses and done sort of subtle critique of that why it, it doesn't work if it doesn't mean like the historic people of Israel, the yeah. Jews, in both of those verses, rather than like the new church composed of Jews and Jesus believing Gentiles, which seems unlikely, just it's a stretch. For me, another thing I keep thinking of and might not be meaningful to most of you, but um, I've read some of the sermons in the Pesikta de Rab Kahana, read them in English translation. These are rabbinic sermons, you know that come on certain days of the Jewish liturgical year. And they'll start with a text and they'll kind of play around with that text and jump around and just kind of go everywhere, just explore through the world of the text. And then they kind of like, at the end, hit on the text for the day. That's kind of the punchline at the end. And it's clear that the conclusion is what really matters. And all the other stuff has kind of been preparation and trial and almost like trial and error. Like, let's see, does this work? Does this work? Does this work? And then, but no. And then it's whatever the text is for that, that uh, pisca for the day, that reading of the day is kind of a neat ending. It's also kind of like a Bach um, choral prelude that plays around with all this stuff. And then finally, right at the end, the prelude goes into the actual melody and, oh yeah, now you recognize it. Um, it's kind of the same thing I'd say with, with Romans 9 through 11. You know, taking just a, a, a slight pivot um, and thinking more about these issues broadly, um, I know that uh, both of you have some thoughts about um, Jewish studies um, in academia and um, what, what that looks like uh, today and I think related to some of the attitudes about um, Hebrew Bible sort of being folded in um, to religion or to uh, Christian studies, um, just wanted to sort of lay that out so that you guys could have some thoughts. Yeah, well, one of the things that I would say is is, is simply, um, I wanna take an Obama stance toward things, which is, it's important to recognize how much progress the field has made, even if there's ways in which somehow or another, there's a scholar out there who takes a turn and you feel like it's a throwback to where we were before we sort of progressed. Both things can be going on at once. And um, I do think we've come a long way. When I went to graduate school at University of Chicago Divinity School, there were very few Jews there. I'm sure you could count them on one hand. If you wanted to study Bible, you had to study the Christian Bible. Even though I was Jewish, if I just wanted to do the Hebrew Bible or Tanakh, you could 
specialize in that, but you had to cover the whole Christian Bible. You had to have an exam in the New Testament. It served me well to do that. I've learned a lot and I've gained a lot of dialogue partners from knowing something about Christianity. So I'm not saying it hurt me to do that, but the general assumption, when I applied to grad schools, I remember that I did not apply to Harvard and Yale Divinity School because it, the application sheet had this thing about explain to us why you see yourself fit for the ministry, right? It was just assumed that if you were going, you were going to be a Christian minister. That was just the de facto thing. Chicago was a little bit more secular, but even Chicago's whole program, like we had a year of three courses that we needed to take on like the history. Really, it was the history of Christianity. It's true, it did Bible and it did a little bit on the Quran. And then, but the it was the bulk of it was on the history of Christianity. And in fact, at University of Chicago, when I arrived there, if you wanted the there was a, a woman uh, who was doing Jewish mysticism, and she was doing it with Bernie McGinn under the history of Christianity, because there was no program called the history of Judaism, even though Chicago is ostensibly a secular institution. They now have a track called history of Judaism, but it didn't exist then. You had to study Judaism under the track of history of Christianity. So things have changed, and that's not to mention in the, the field of, you know, Second Temple Judaism and and in New Testament, you now have like, you know, all sorts of interesting dialogue going between Christians and Jews. You have that Jewish New Testament that A.J. Levine helped edit. Um, you know, you you have figures like Paula Friedrichson. It doesn't mean the Jews who are writing are right about everything in the New Testament, but you have vigorous discussion between Jewish scholars who are approaching these texts and Christian scholars who are studying them. And um, we learn from each other, and that's that's a good thing. So there's been a lot of progress. Um, yeah, I was just particularly distressed by some of the stuff that Wright was saying and felt that it, it required a response. So we tried to put one together. I don't know that we're right about everything that we're saying about Wright. I should mention, and I originally wanted to call the article where Wright went wrong, but they, they nixed that at HTR. So. You may find that entertaining. Yeah, Joel, Joel and I met in the fall quarter of 1985 in an Aramaic class in the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. I think Joel was the first maybe like academic type Jewish person I had met. Um, and then Joel's teacher, John Levinson, gave me my Hebrew exam at the U of Chicago. I did not know him well then, but years later I asked John Levinson to read something I was writing on the covenants of the Bible. And that was a very formative um, exchange that I had with John Levinson and had other times to talk with John Levinson that have been very useful for me. So I think that my friendships with with Joel and John Levinson have just been great. And um really helped me see uh, and respect Judaism. I have a very deep respect for rabbinic Judaism because they've kept alive the worship of the one God uh, despite Israel's exile and despite there being no temple. So I think I really respect rabbinic Judaism, like it, and uh, 
am so thankful to be alive right now when we when we can work together like this. I mean, I'll say one other thing. It's another, I guess, axis of of my book and one of, of my life's work, which is that, um, and I think it does go back to some of the ways that Wright reads things, um, which is there's a tendency to read the materials in Second Isaiah in particular as somebody in Israel has finally recognized that you know, God is concerned with everyone and particularism is being jettisoned for like a universal horizon that's being glimpsed. And I do think the text in second and third Isaiah are places where you do glimpse a growing concern with like God, not just being the God of Israel, but being God of the whole world. But I don't think it comes at the expense of Israel's particularism. I think Israel's understanding of the implications of its election for the rest of the world come about because of a deepening understanding of Israel's particularism, of who Israel is. And in that sense, I think that like the idea of election in some sense is related to the way in which we grow as human beings. We don't become less ourselves over time. We become more ourselves over time. Hopefully, as we become more ourselves, we become more human and we can look outward in a wider way and encompass more people who we can interact with and, and uh, see the image of God in. But it's not because we become less of who we are. It's become more who we are. We grow into ourselves. So I think that's just a point to sort of keep in mind that, well, we today tend to see the universal as coming about by giving up the particular, right? I don't think that's the way how it works in the Bible. I think the universal grows in, it's the vision of the universal grows as Israel's and the Jewish people's understanding of who they are particularly is deepened. So it's not like one at the expense of the other. It's actually one is, is they're yoked together. They're inseparable. That's a point that John Levinson made, I think, very profoundly. And, and it's hard because I think we just assume that our way of doing business, which seems to be that if you want to be more tolerant, you're more universal, it means that you give up any of your claims we see that as self-evident. I don't think that's really self-evident. It's something we can learn from the Bible. There's probably a bit of a political pressure on some readers of these texts to be uncomfortable with very heavy particularity of God's election of Israel, right? That is this, right? I mean, you get the language in right that the kind of view of Israel's election that emerged, at least in the Second Temple period, he considers to be deeply nationalistic. He yeah, yeah, yeah. That, fighting that it it is deeply nationalistic, but you know it's not clear that Paul yes. gets rid of that. You know, I'm remarking comments yes. on this, but it seems like in places, Paul, and not to mention Jesus, um, see a political dimension. You know, they don't. You know, the Book of Revelation seems to talk about a new Jerusalem with the new people of Israel. You know, it's 
this is not completely antithetical to what's inside of the New Testament, even though it's antithetical to a lot of contemporary Christians. You know, read your Bible, you know. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, somehow or another, what the Bible says is we all need to support the state of Israel. What I am saying is the Bible seems to recognize that God has a concern for the Jewish people and that has a political dimension to it. How that should be fulfilled, that I think is open to debate. There, there's, there's kind of an inferiority complex, I think, with a lot of Christians that, uh, actually, we discussed this in the episode with Willie Jennings, where uh, Willie Jennings said that one of the first things that a lot of Western Christians have to reckon with is they have to deal with their Gentile-ishness. They have, to, they have to begin with the premise that they are Gentiles and they are, if they are, to sit at the, if they think in some way that they sit at the table of the people of God, that they've come second. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a lot of um, Gentile Christians that are uncomfortable with that idea, that they're almost a footnote in this long story about Israel's, <laughs> about the nation of Israel's election. Yeah, yeah, uh, well. and, they, and they can't handle that they weren't, uh, you know, the the main character from the start <laughs> yeah it's you know it's a, it's an odd thing whatever i years ago when i was teaching a seminar when i was writing my book yet i love chosen i remember i had a student who left the class and went to her major advisor who's a friend of mine because he called me and told me and said the student showed up in my office crying said she's not a She's, you know, not not the mainstay in this. You told her that, like, it's about the Jews and, you know, she's a secondary character type, you know, exactly like this. And she was distressed. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, that's what the story says. You know, that's the implications of the story. You can do what you don't have to buy the story. You can reject the story, but you at least have to hear what the story is saying, you know. And it's a, another thing that I should say on this front, and I'll try to keep it brief, is. I have a lot of students who are like, well, I don't like the Bible because I can't find myself in it. And I say, I say to a lot of my students, look, I don't go to the Bible to find myself in it. I actually go to the Bible to find not myself in it and to expand who I might be. I'm not somebody who looks favorably on bringing my father-in-law a hundred Philistine foreskins, basically scalping Philistine penises as you know <laughs> a gift for my father-in-law yeah. to get married to his daughter that's very alien to me right there's a lot of things that are alienated in the text i don't go to the text to find myself but to expand a notion of like who am i connected to how am i connected to this story even though it's very alien to me and how do i make sense of those alien elements it's all right to be uncomfortable you know that that's okay that's a, a lot of what being a religious person is, is learning to live in that space of uncomfortability with the texts and ideas that we've inherited from the past and trying to make them part of who we are today, but in a way that also respects the fact that there will be elements that will remain alien to us or that will be very challenging. That's all right. That's what we do in religion. Well, Dr. Kaminsky and Dr. Reasoner, thanks so much for joining us and for modeling Jewish-Christian dialogue and thinking through the interpretation of Paul. It's been fun. Thank you. Okay. Take care, everyone. 